Good to see all of your faces out there this morning. We're going to continue today in our look at the gospel according to Luke. And uh, we're going to be looking at a a couple of different uh, passages, Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, and then chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Uh, These are two episodes in Jesus' life that are very significant early in his adult life for setting up the rest of his ministry. And that's why we're going to hold these two uh, passages together this morning. But let's pray before we read this morning. Gracious God, we thank you for this word that you have inspired and authored by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we pray today that you would bless to us this reading of your Holy Word, and that by your Holy Spirit you would apply it to our hearts, to our minds, to our lives. Lord, once again, we we ask that we would not leave here today unchanged. Uh, Lord, that we would have an encounter with you this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Starting uh, with chapter 3, verse 21. When all of the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And then skipping to chapter 4. After this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, then tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place, and he showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him up to Jerusalem and had had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So before we uh, get to a deeper look at our passage today, uh, I wanted to just give a little bit of background. We skipped over this part as we were going through Advent and Christmas, but before we get too much deeper into Luke, I wanted to just give a little bit of background on this gospel, things that we can, can keep in mind as we go through this book. So we have a little bit of context. We can think about some of the bigger themes uh, that Luke covers. Uh, for those of you who are interested in these things, uh, Luke was probably written sometime between the years. 60 AD and 80 AD. We're not exactly sure. Uh, And the scholars don't think it was written any time in that area, but they think it was either written in the early 60s before Paul died, 
or it was written after 70 AD, after the fall of Jerusalem. So that can place it for you a little bit. They don't know exactly, but this is when, based on the evidence in the text, they think it could have been written. So either before Paul died or after the fall of Jerusalem. So what I think is interesting about this uh, with Luke and all of the first three Gospels in particular, that they are written in this time frame that's about a generation after Jesus' death and resurrection. And so up to that point, you might think about 30 plus years, up to that point, much of people, uh, what people knew about Jesus and had learned about Jesus was passed down orally by eyewitnesses, the apostles and, and other disciples of Jesus who had been there, who had known him, who had witnessed these things. And so they had been telling them these eyewitness accounts, these first-person accounts of what they had experienced with Jesus. And so that's how a lot of this tradition started, what we believe. But after a generation, as these people started to pass away, uh, then there was a sense in which we needed to write these things down so that they could be passed on to later generations, so that people like you and I, 2,000 years later, could have the benefit of reading these accounts and knowing what happened. And so that's what Luke was doing. As we said last week, he was writing down an orderly account from his firsthand uh, investigations of talking to people, I witnesses, things like that, so that he could preserve this tradition about Jesus and pass it along to other people. The author, Luke, uh, he was a physician. He was a, a companion to Paul on some of his missionary journeys. And we meet Luke in the book of Acts, and we first find out about him and what he's doing um, which is his sequel to Luke. Luke also wrote the book of Acts, and Paul also mentions him in his letters. And the books of Luke and Acts, when you put them together, they take up almost one-third of the New Testament. When you look at Luke and Acts together, they take up almost one-third of the New Testament. So what that means is that a lot of what we know and believe about Jesus, and a lot of what we know and believe about the New Testament as Christians, the source was Luke. Luke is the one. So we owe him sort of a debt of gratitude for all of these things that he wrote down, because so much of what we believe is coming from what he wrote down about the early church and the Gospels. And there are several themes that Luke emphasizes throughout his gospel. The identity of Jesus as God's Messiah and Son. That's something that we're going to see a lot and we've already seen in these first couple chapters. We see the role of the Holy Spirit in guiding and empowering Jesus' ministry. That's something that we see in the gospel of Luke, even as, Luke was, uh, as Jesus was being born in these first couple chapters. And the, the Holy Spirit takes on a much bigger role in the book of Acts, we'll see. My New Testament professor says, said that, that Luke is a Pentecostal. Luke is a Pentecostal. He is big on the Holy Spirit. So pay attention to the Holy Spirit when we go through this gospel of Luke and see what the Holy Spirit is up to. But the main focus of Luke's book, and maybe this isn't surprising, but it is salvation, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save people. But the question is, who is this salvation for? Salvation for whom? That's a question that we want to ask ourselves as we read through this book. Jesus has come to Israel. He is Israel's promised Messiah, just as God had promised in the Old Testament. But also, Jesus has come to bring salvation to the Gentiles. This is another promise that we have, and Luke emphasizes this fact over and over again. And along with the Gentiles, Luke emphasizes that salvation has come to people in unexpected places. The Gentiles would be included in that, but even people amongst the people of Israel. 
Salvation has come to people in unexpected places, even those who are outside the boundaries of respectable society. Jesus didn't just come to save the so-called righteous people. He came to make salvation available to all who would put their faith in him. And that was a really big deal at the time. As we looked at the verse last week from later in Luke, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. At one point, we may remember that Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, right? Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, to come for sick people, for sinners, people who needed to be saved. He came to make salvation available to all who would put their faith in him, and that is good news for people like you and me this morning. So pay attention as we go through Luke to who Jesus is interacting with and what he says to them. Because it may surprise you. It may surprise you the way that he interacts with people. I like how Eugene Peterson describes it in his introduction to Luke in uh, The Message. And this is what Peterson says. This is an abridged version of his introduction. He says, most of us, most of the time, feel left out. Misfits. We don't belong. Others seem so confident, so sure of themselves. They're insiders who know the ropes old hands in a club from which we are excluded. But Luke is a most vigorous champion of the outsider. An outsider himself, he shows how Jesus includes those who typically were treated as outsiders by the religious establishment of the day. Women, common laborers such as sheep herders, the racially different like Samaritans, the poor. As Luke tells the story, All of us who have found ourselves on the outside looking in on life with no hope of gaining entrance, and who of us hasn't felt that way at some point, now find the doors wide open, found and welcomed by God in Jesus Christ. This is what Peterson says is the theme of Luke's gospel, and so we want to hear this as we're going through it over the next couple months so all of that brings us to today's passage, and we're gonna, uh, we start with this, this brief look at Jesus' baptism, those first two verses that we read. And it's, it's one of the great Trinitarian passages that we see in all of Scripture, in all of the New Testament, where we have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all together. And we see, as you see on the slide, both of these passages, they are about Jesus' uh, preparation for ministry. That's what we're going to look at this morning, Jesus' preparation for ministry. What was going on there? So in Jesus' baptism, we see the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all together. And this, this, this uh, episode in his life is rich with symbolism. Jesus is being anointed by the Holy Spirit in his baptism. It says the Holy Spirit came down in bodily form like a dove and rested on Jesus. And it's a sign that it is time for Jesus' public ministry to begin. That's what's going on here. There's a lot more that could be said about this passage. We could write lots of sermons just on these two verses. But for today, our focus is on the Heavenly Father speaking and saying, You are my Son, whom I love, and in you I am well pleased. You are my son, whom I love. We've talked about how in these first couple chapters of Luke, there's this emphasis on revealing Jesus' identity as the Messiah. Who is this baby that was born in a manger in Bethlehem and who grew up in Nazareth? Who is it that we're really dealing with here? This this son of Mary and Joseph the carpenter, he's not just any old person. 
He is God's Messiah. He is the Son of God. And we've heard that from voices from the angels. We've heard it from prophets already that this is the Messiah. This is God's Son. This is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And we've even heard it from Jesus himself in the passage we looked at last week. When he was 12 years old, he said, Didn't you know I should be in my father's house? But now here in these verses, we hear from the most authoritative voice of all, the heavenly father who rends the heavens and opens them up and speaks and says, this is my son in whom I love and in whom I am well pleased. Let there be no question of who Jesus is as we follow him through the course of his earthly life. We are looking at the life of the son of God. And so from here, Jesus heads into the wilderness, which is what's going to take up the bulk of our focus this morning. Now, I have to confess, I don't have a lot of wilderness experience in my life. So I was in the Boy Scouts. If you're familiar with the Boy Scouts, it is uh, an organization that takes uh, boys and young men, and it's character building, and a lot of it has to do with going camping in the woods on weekends and learning uh, wilderness survival skills. And I did earn the Wilderness Survival Merit Badge when I was about 15 years old, which mostly involved hiking about a couple hundred meters away from the dining hall and setting up our own shelter in the woods, which we slept in in a sleeping bag. And obviously I survived. I'm here to tell the tale. I'm just glad it didn't rain that night. So that is a lot of my wilderness experience. Now, I did have some more real wilderness experience. Vale and I had this together. Uh, We were able to spend a summer in Kenya about a decade ago doing some volunteer work there. And uh, we did a backpacking trip while we were there. And our guide, as we were going through and hiking, before we started, he told us about some of the things we might run across. We were in sort of a rainforest area. He said, these are some of the animals we might see while we're along the way. And one of those animals was elephants. We might see elephants. And I said, well, what do we do if we see an elephant? And he said, elephants, we run. That's what you do. So this is maybe a little bit more of a real wilderness experience for us. We did not run into any, fortunately. But our story about Jesus today is about more of this kind of wilderness. This is where Jesus headed to. A wilderness where your life might be at risk just by being out there. Jesus went out to a place that was unpopulated. It was untamed, where there were wild animals. And he was subject to the elements. And resources were scarce, although this maybe didn't matter quite so much because he was fasting the entire time he was out there. But the idea of the wilderness looms large in the biblical imagination. We talked about this a little bit last summer in our series about David. It's a place where people are tried. It's a place where people are tested. It's a place where the spiritual powers are at work. And people thought of the wilderness as a place where angels and demons were living and going at it with each other. It was also often a place where people did business with God. And all of this is present in our story today. We're being given front row seats in this passage to what might be considered an epic spiritual battle, the epic spiritual battle of scripture, Jesus versus the devil. And sometimes when we read this story, it doesn't come across as, as, as exciting or significant as it really is. And the question maybe for us is, why does Jesus go out there? 
Why does he go out there in the first place? For what purpose? He's fresh off of his baptism. The Holy Spirit descended on him as we saw. God spoke, designating Jesus as his son. It's this real high point in his life and ministry. You might think that Jesus was really pumped up after this experience. But then we're told being full of the Holy Spirit, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Jesus has been given this powerful revelation of, Jesus, of, of his identity as the son of God. And it seems almost like this time in the wilderness puts a damper on everything. It seems to me it would have made more sense to send Jesus straight out to be with the people after his baptism. Just get him out there into the middle of the towns and the cities interacting with people because he was coming off that high moment. He's just had this huge affirmation. He's confident. He's got lots of energy and enthusiasm. You want to say, go, Jesus, go, run with this, take this, and go and start your ministry. Start doing the miracles. Start spreading the good news. It really would have been a shame to lose all of this momentum, wouldn't it? It makes me think about an athlete and getting them all pumped up for the big game in the locker room and then saying, and you're not playing for another month. The game doesn't actually happen for another month. And by the way, this month before the game is going to be the most physically and psychologically taxing month of your entire life. That's sort of what's happening with Jesus here. So why? Why was Jesus led into the wilderness? We're told in this verse, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And this verse tells us two things about why Jesus was out there, both of them showing that it was God's purpose for Jesus to be tested in this way. The first thing that we see is that, that it was intended by God for him to be out there. It was necessary. And again, this is something we see over and over again in Luke, that things were necessary for God's purposes. This was part of God's plan for Jesus' life. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was led out there by the Holy Spirit. I like the way the Gospel of Mark says it. It says that the Holy Spirit drove Jesus out into the desert, sort of forced Jesus out there, even threw him out there. And there's a sense that Jesus knew that this was not going to be a fun experience for him. This was not going to be a pleasant experience for him. But he's led out there by the Holy Spirit of God. And second, we're told that he went out there to be tempted, to be tested. This wasn't just some prayer retreat that was unfortunately interrupted by the devil. The devil didn't just take advantage of a situation. Jesus went out there to do battle in the way that we see God's purpose for Jesus was to go out into the wilderness to be tested and to show himself obedient. And why? Well, we're meant to hear again echoes here of the Old Testament in this story. Jesus comes through the waters of baptism and he is divinely led into the wilderness for 40 days to be tested. And in the book of Exodus, we read that the Israelites come through the waters of the Red Sea. And they are divinely led into the wilderness for 40 years where they are tested by God. In the book of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 8, we're going to read verses 1 through 10. And it maybe lets us see a little bit more of God's purposes for what is going on with Jesus here. This is what it says. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today. So that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. 
Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which you, neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during these 40 days. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks and streams and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. And when you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, That passage is a great one. It goes on to tell the Israelites that when you get there and when things are prosperous for you, do not forget the Lord your God. And that there is going to be a temptation for you to say to yourself, look at what we have done for ourselves. Look at all of these things that we have gained for ourselves and to forget what God has done for you. So God tells Israel that he led them out into the desert for those 40 years in order that they would be humbled and that they would be tested so that God would know what was in their hearts and whether or not they would be obedient to him. But we also see that their time in the wilderness was a time of their learning to be dependent on God. It was a time where God directed their paths quite literally and provided for their every need, even the very food that they ate. For the Israelites, their 40 years of wandering was to prepare them to live as God's people in the good land that God was giving to them. It was a time that they needed in order to learn to trust God completely and to live by his word and and to learn how to obey his commands to them. This is something we see happen a lot in the Bible. When God calls people according to his purpose, it often involves a time of preparation, Uh, depending on God, a time in the wilderness. And it is often an important and necessary time of trial and of testing and of learning to trust in God. And so this this is what is happening with Jesus. Even he, as the son of God, goes through this time of testing and of preparation for his ministry. And the devil is happy to put him to the test, tempting Jesus three times in three ways that are relevant to the ministry that he is about to begin. So the devil comes to Jesus when he's weak. He hasn't eaten for 40 days, and what I think may be the greatest understatement in all of Scripture, it says, and Jesus was hungry. He hasn't eaten for 40 days, and he was hungry, right? He is at a weak point. He is at a a very vulnerable moment in his life. He would be very susceptible to temptation at this point. And the devil starts by saying this, if you are the son of God, calling into question the very identity of Jesus that was just affirmed at his baptism, And this is often the devil's strategy. 
when he shows up to tempt people. He starts by calling God's word into question. He starts there. If you are the son of God. And in this, we have another Old Testament echo. We remember another time when the devil was trying to tempt people to be disobedient to God in Genesis chapter three. When he comes to Adam and Eve, the serpent approaches Eve and he says, did God really say not to eat the fruit? It's much more subtle and insidious to tempt people this way. It's not sort of this direct confrontation. Just do it. It doesn't matter. It calls God's word into question. God's promises for Jesus are being called into question. And it allows the person to come to the lie themselves. Did God really say this? Well, I don't know. Maybe God didn't say that. It's a great way to start people down the wrong path. And part of what we see in our passages today, part of why I wanted to hold the two of them up against each other is because we see this contrast between two voices that are always in competition in our lives. The voice of the Lord and the voice of the devil, right? The voice of the deceiver. And which voice are we going to listen to? Which voice are we going to listen to in our lives Do we hear the voice of the Lord and do we obey it? Or do we listen to the voice of the deceiver and follow what it tells us to do? So the devil tempts Jesus first with food. And for someone who hasn't eaten in 40 days, this would have a really powerful pull. But I think maybe the bigger temptation, what we see happen for Jesus here, is for physical comfort and for pleasure. Jesus' ministry is one where he wanders from place to place, often not taking much with him. And later in Luke, we we hear him tell his would-be disciple that the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus' ministry called for him to often be uncomfortable and insecure. And so giving in to this temptation to make bread for himself, to eat it, to be comfortable in that way, to be secure in that way, would have derailed his entire ministry before it even began. The second temptation that we see the the devil give to him is for worldly power. The devil offers him authority over all of the kingdoms of the world. And he says, all you have to do is to worship me. And this would be a constant temptation for Jesus throughout his ministry. As people were looking for the Messiah to be a powerful king who would overthrow the Romans and anybody else that they saw as being their oppressors, people wanted him to grab power. But his ministry called for him to remain humble. To be a mighty earthly king would have undermined all he was about, the heart of his ministry and message. And yet we would see that this would have been a powerful temptation for him. He knows that some point, or at least we, we read later in Matthew's gospel, that all authority in heaven and on earth is given to him by his heavenly father. He knows this is coming for him. Why not go ahead and take it? Why not take all of the power of the world into his own hands? It would have been easier for him to get things done that way, right? Always easier that way. I'll grasp the power. I'm going to do good things with it. But again, it would have derailed his ministry. And then the final temptation that involved putting God's word to the test. And in this specific way, to do something miraculous, do something spectacular. Jesus, throw yourself down from this place. And again, we hear the devil question, if you are the son of God, then throw yourself down from here, from the very top of the temple, and God will rescue you. 
You can trust this. This is God's promise for you. And this is really relevant because I think Jesus heard, or we know that Jesus heard similar words spoken to him while he was hanging on the cross. If you are the son of God, then save yourself. Come down from there. Each of the temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness uh, had something to do with the ministry he was about to embark on. And to have given in to any one of them would have derailed his ministry. This was a time of preparation for what was ahead of him and all of the temptations that would come with it. To stay comfortable, to seize power, to come down from the cross. And each one of them invited Jesus to take his life into his own hands, to do things his own way, to go against what God's provision and action and plans were for him. Jesus demonstrates through his responses, though, his total commitment to God the Father's plan for him and for his life and for the redemption of the world, something that we talked about last week a little bit. This shows his complete trust in his heavenly Father to do the work that was set in front of him. Jesus chooses to be led by the Holy Spirit wherever that might take him in life. He chooses obedience. And by his obedience, he shows himself to be truly the Son of God. So, what does this passage do for us? What does this passage do for us I think the pastoral question to ask from this uh, passage today is to say, how many of you have ever faced temptation in life or had your faith tested in some way? Let me rephrase that. The pastoral question to ask from this is, how many of you have ever faced temptation or had your faith tested today, this morning? We know, we know that this is a part of life. Temptations are a part of life. Faith being tested is a part of life. If you want to see temptation in action, follow me around the grocery store sometime and you will see it play out in very real ways. You might even see me having arguments with myself as I decide whether to put things in the grocery cart or not, right? Temptation is real and it's real in small ways and it's real in big ways. But this passage can help us in our temptations in a couple of different ways. First Corinthians tells us that there is no temptation except that which is common to all people and that we won't be tested beyond what we can bear. And not only that, but when we are tested, God will provide a way out. And this is encouragement for us in life when we face temptations the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus sympathizes with us in our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way that we are, and yet he was without sin. I love both of these promises that God has provided for us in these different ways when we face temptation, that we know that we are not alone in our temptations and our testings in even our sin because there is no temptation except that which is common to all people. That's another one of the lies the devil tells us is that we're the only one who struggles with this, right? When it's not true. And sometimes we need to confess to one another so we can hear people say, I struggle with that too, right? There are no temptation except which is common to all people. And we won't be tested beyond what we can bear. And the Lord is going to provide a way out in some way. 
But not only that, Jesus, and in this passage we see it, Jesus himself was tempted and tested in every way that we are. We have a Lord and God that can sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he has gone through these things himself. He understands our struggles. And he went through it and yet was without sin and did it on our behalf. So we find in this story, in a way, all of the trials and tests that all of us ever face Jesus' temptations encompass all of our temptations. Jesus was tempted by, uh, by physical temptations, uh, by worldly pleasure, by being comfortable, the desire for comfort and security and stability. And the question comes, how many of us would forsake our comfort and our affluence and our security in order to follow God's call in our life? That's a question that we all have to wrestle with at some point. What does God call us to leave behind sometimes, and are we willing to do it? Jesus was tempted by the desire for power and for influence. It's a temptation to, to pride and to the ego. You can be the most important person in the world. You can be the one who decides everything for everybody else, and you know you're going to do a better job with it than anybody else is going to. So you can have this power. Why not grasp it and take it? Putting God to the test even, even controlling God in a way is what Jesus is being tempted with here. Just do this, and God will respond in this way. And I think this is a really interesting one. It's almost sort of a, a, a spiritual temptation that we run into here. This sort of idea of, of do, get God to do something miraculous. Use God's promises and power for your own means and for your own good. And maybe, maybe even if it happened the way that the devil had said, a lot of people would have seen it and had put, uh, believed in God in some way or the power of God. But for Jesus to have done it would have made the Father smaller in some way, that he could control him and his miraculous power in that way. So we see that Jesus does these two different things, right? And he uh, leads us in two different ways or gives us sort of two different strategies that we can use when we face temptation ourselves. The first one is this, to be led by the Holy Spirit. To be led by the Holy Spirit. We see that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit that led him out into the desert. A lot of times we read this passage and we think Jesus was out there by himself, but he wasn't. He was out there with the Holy Spirit, with God's presence with him. And whenever we are tempted and tested in life, we need to remember that we are not alone either, that God's presence is with us. For those of us who are in Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit indwells us. And so we have that power within us to stand up and face temptation and testing when we need it. So we need to turn to God in that moment of trial and in that moment of testing and to ask for his help and for his power to stand up to the temptation. Jesus also shows us to rely on God's word. Each time the devil tempts him, he responds with a verse from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy. And he says, this is what God actually says when the devil calls God's word into question. So we also can look to the scriptures to guide us and to strengthen us when we face the trials. One of the things I love that we see here is that the Holy Spirit and the word of God always go hand in hand. It's often by the scriptures that the Holy Spirit guides us and the Holy Spirit is never going to lead us in a way that is contrary to God's word. And so how do we use God's word and look to it to strengthen us? 
Well, the trick is we have to be familiar with God's word in order to be guided by it. We have to spend time reading the scriptures, learning them, praying through them, studying them. And why turning to the scriptures is so important is that in it, we fight the devil's lives with God's truth. We fight the devil's lies with God's truth. It helps us to be able to recognize the lies when they first appear in our head. Did God really say, does this really matter? Will this really hurt anyone if you do this? No one else will know. And this is the first step in fighting temptation is to recognize that it is happening in the moment. Scripture reminds us of the truth, of God's truth, that God is faithful, that his ways are sure, and that following our own path over God's is never a good decision for us. Scripture also reminds us that God, of God's law, which is for our own good. It's for our flourishing. And that our actions should always be governed by love for God and love for neighbor. Never love of ourself. So that's a question we can ask ourselves if we're trying to decide if something's a good decision or not. If I do this, am I loving God? Am I, if I do this, am I loving my neighbor? These are good questions to start with. And finally, Scripture reminds us that temptation and testing always have a way out. Sometimes it's as simple as saying no. Sometimes it means running away. Sometimes it means cutting things out of our lives that cause us to stumble, to leave them behind, no matter what good they may bring us or what good we think they may bring us, that it's okay to leave things behind and to cut things out of our lives. We may need other people to help us. We may need the community. Think about the things that you do when you're by yourself that you would never do if somebody else was there with you. We may need help from other people, the body of Christ. That may be part of our way out. And sometimes, in extreme cases, we may even need to seek professional help to get us out of the temptations and things that get their hooks in us. But God has promised us help and a way out, and we need to look for it. So Jesus sets for us this example to follow, to rely on the Holy Spirit, to rely on God's word, and we should follow it. But ultimately, friends, this is not the gospel. Ultimately, this is not the gospel. God's word can help us the Holy Spirit can help us, but it's not a silver bullet to just stop and pray and to remember Scripture because we will still fall. The good news of Jesus Christ is not that he has given us a good example to follow, that he has shown us how to overcome temptation as good as that is. Jesus hasn't shown us the way, but he is the way, and he is the truth, and he is the life. And the reason that Jesus' time in the desert matters so much is because he was obedient where no one else could be. Not Adam and Eve, not the Israelites in the Old Testament, not the prophets, not the church now. All of us have failed, even with Jesus' example to follow in life. Jesus alone is the perfectly obedient son. And this obedience, again, as we talked about last week, it led him to his death on our behalf. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus became obedient to death, even death on the cross. He took our sins on himself and he gave us the reward for his obedience. And this is grace. This is the gospel. So as you go home from this place today, may your reflection not end on you and your behavior and how you can be victorious over temptation and testing, even though those are good things. But may all of that lead you once again to Christ and to his cross, 
where your sins were paid for and where your reward is found. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, uh, we give you thanks for your Son. And we thank you for all that he has done for us. Lord, we, we can't even wrap our heads around it. We thank you that he was obedient where we could not be. Even obedient to death on the cross for our sakes. And Lord, we do thank you that you have helped us, that you have given us your Holy Spirit, you have given us your word to stand up to trials and temptations when they come. And Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us to be obedient ourselves and to faithfully follow you in this life. But Lord, we pray most of all that you would help us to keep our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. We ask all of this in his name and for his sake. Amen.